This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Thursday morning show for you today, and we start with the new Massey Tunnel, a new eight-lane tunnel to replace the existing four-lane Massey Tunnel, $4.15 billion is the price tag, an in-service target date of 2030. Already controversy over this project. The opposition liberals ripping it, of course. They wanted a 10-lane bridge instead. And now the Surrey Board of Trade also saying a bridge would have been a better way forward. Let's discuss now. We've got both sides of it for you here this morning. We go first to BC Transportation Minister Rob Fleming, who made the big announcement yesterday. Minister, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Minister, can you explain why this Plan B is a better way forward than the original plan? The 10-lane bridge that had been proposed earlier was going to be cheaper and bigger. Now you've got an an eight-lane tunnel instead for more money. How is that a better way forward here? Well, well, in 2014 dollars, they're about the same, but this is a better project, and this is the project that the region wanted. Uh, this is a good technology that is safe and reliable. It will have uh, rapid bus technology integrated for the first time uh, as well, active transportation link, cycling and pedestrian access uh, uh, through the tunnel will be will connect on both sides of the Fraser. So look, we, we, make, we, we, we make no secret of the fact that it was a priority for us to work with, not against the region's transportation initiatives. It's why we've been able to uh, break ground earlier this year on a Broadway subway uh, uh, extension that connects the region's second largest uh, job centre. Many of those people live, of course, uh, south of the Fraser. It's why we uh, announced the Surrey-Langley Skytrain extension. It's why we've got the Patello Bridge coming in service in 2024 and are making uh, improvements to the Alex Fraser Bridge. So when you look at uh, crossings over the Fraser River, this government has uh, dramatically expanded public transit opportunities as well as improving our uh, regional uh, transportation network. Okay, speaking of public transit, Minister, you mentioned rapid buses going through this new tunnel. What about rapid transit like SkyTrain or LRT? Would that be able to go through this new tunnel? Yeah, we had a good hard look at that during the technical review and during the business case. And uh, we worked very closely with, again, the region, uh, TransLink and uh, Metro Vancouver. They have a number of uh, rail-based uh, transit priorities in the, in a, a document or a vision a vision document called Transport 2050. Highway 99 is not one of them. Um, uh, so rapid bus was seen as the most appropriate technology that would be able to get the most people out of vehicles and be able to well, get off Highway 99 to the communities of the final destination. Well, so, is that is that not a lost opportunity, though? I mean, the bridge that was proposed would have been built to accommodate rapid transit over that bridge. You could have put an LRT train over that bridge. Now, yeah. now you've lost that opportunity. Well, the analysis was that even 75, 80 years into the future, that would not be the priority. There's, there's definitely rail prioritization and planning. We've announced funding for the Broadway uh, uh, subway to be expanded eventually out to UBC. There are a number of other initiatives, but this is way down the queue. And again, that's not 
the province determining that that's based on the demographics that's based on the analysis if highway 99 didn't go through mostly alr and have a bunch of <clears throat> feeder communities like ladner and white rock which by the way are not where the population growth is going to be in the next uh, few decades uh then it might have uh, it might have scored higher but what you get with bus as opposed to a linear fixed rail is uh fast access through the tunnel priority access and the okay. flexibility to uh, have direct express service to all those communities okay. that I've mentioned and others. Okay, well, I think rapid transit would have been more visionary, but let me play this clip here for you and get your thoughts on it. Uh, this is uh, Kevin Falcon, the former uh, liberal uh, finance minister now running for the liberal leadership. He will be the next liberal leader. Uh, here he is on the show yesterday talking about this plan. Doing a tunnel is possibly the stupidest decision you could possibly make. It will be extraordinarily expensive. It will not add additional lanes for, for the commuter traffic that is already just jammed. Um, and it's going to have huge environmental impacts. I mean, the Fraser River estuary is a very, very sensitive area. Minister, what do you say to him? Well, interesting uh, historical flip-flop on his position because, of course, Kevin Falcon proposed twinning uh, the Massey Tunnel. That was his his uh, project that never advanced uh, back in 2006. So he's obviously had a change of heart or is playing politics as he's pandering for uh, leadership votes. Uh, it's a lot different than what he said before. But uh, look, we did a Well, that was 15 years, ag- 15 years ago, and he did change his position. Sure. He, supports the, he supports the bridge. Sure, but I don't know if Kevin Falcon is an environmental expert. We did have five environmental reviews that were part of his business case. Tunnels are built uh, all over the world, including in places like the Netherlands that have very robust environmental assessments just like British Columbia so I think he's just trying to uh, come up with anything negative to say about this Uh, it's eight lanes it's double what the capacity is today it will provide unprecedented uh, public transit links that that simply aren't there right now okay well it's eight lanes but there'll be two dedicated bus lanes there right so there's six lanes for commuter and truck traffic there and if you take a look Mm -hmm. at the way the the existing Massey tunnel is operating right now with the counterflow system so during rush hour you'd have three lanes open for rush hour traffic on the Massey tunnel now you'll have three lanes three lanes going each way right so i mean how is that how is that any different or could you do could you do counterflow in this new tunnel too you'll well, first of all, you'll get, you'll get bus traffic in the fourth lane. And right yeah. now, when you do that counter flow, you have an underutilized third lane. It doesn't work well. You can't get off to the Steveston uh, interchange, uh, by the way, which we are improving from two to five lanes. It doesn't flow well at all. So you have an underutilized third lane. And then the worst part of the congestion, we did a very extensive study on this, is when you're down to one lane going the other way. That's a huge source of congestion and frustration that will be resolved because you'll always have three lanes going in each direction. You'll have the Steveston interchange improvements that are being made. And, and look, we make no bones about it. We want to shift lots of people to public transit. If you every 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 full bus that's going to be on this new rapid bus infrastructure is 50 cars, which stretch for a kilometer or more. So, yeah, it's the year 2021. We've got to have uh, uh, transit-based solutions and. Uh, that's uh, part and parcel of this uh, announcement. But, but you're building a, also add, though, you're building a tunnel that won't allow. You're building a tunnel. You're building a tunnel, minister, that will not allow for rapid transit. I mean, we're just going to be uh, you can't just running. We're going to be on buses forever. Because we're going to invest billions, as we have seven billion dollars in current projects right now on uh, rapid rail-based uh, transit in the in the parts of the region that have the density that uh, that that, that okay. justify. Uh, those investments most immediately. Uh, look, TransLink looked 75 years out into the, into, into the future. They, they would not uh, include that in their 
list of rail-based priorities. And, okay. Uh, Broadway okay. Subway, for example, uh, with express bus service right now carrying 110,000 boardings per day, will carry 300,000 people uh, when we tunnel under uh, Broadway and go out to Arbutus. That's why you put the investment there. Okay, speaking of Transportation Minister Rob Fleming, most people comparing this plan for a new tunnel compared to the original plan A for a 10-lane bridge. So let's just dig a little deeper into that, and I'll play another clip here for you from your your, your buddy Kevin Falcon here on the show yesterday. Talk, here he is making the case for the bridge, and then I'll get your thoughts. We could have had that bridge opening by next summer at $900 million below the $3.5 billion budget. I would ask you to contrast that with the record of the NDP government in all, all right. of their transportation projects, which are wildly over budget, way behind schedule, and frankly not adding any additional commuter benefit. Okay, so I don't know, taking some cracks there at other projects, but let's just stick with yeah. the bridge. So a 10-lane bridge, $3.5 billion price tag. They, you just heard him say there they, they got uh, bids underneath, uh, underneath under budget. Why? How do you respond? They have bids because it never went to procurement. That bewilders me. So I think there's a little bit of urban mythology going on here. The fact is that it never went to the market. There were no bids. It never went to procurement. Three point five billion dollars in, in 2014 terms is, is is the same as as the cost of this project. But I would also be open ask, this you know, spring though. Kevin Falcon, next time you have him on, yeah. why he was a Surrey MLA forever. Never put a, a millimeter of SkyTrain extension uh, into Surrey, let alone Langley. In all his time as transportation minister, we've made the first investment in three decades uh, in rapid transit uh, in that in that fast growing region. That's where the density and most of the growth is, and uh, that's the the, the latest uh, federal partnership that we've announced that has shown that our government has got for the first time ever six concurrent major projects on the go in the province of British Columbia. It's got the largest capital budget in BC history. Uh, and is making uh, investments in our transportation network, including this one, that are important trade corridors. Okay, let me play a clip here for you from uh, the Surrey Board of Trade CEO, Anita Huberman, speaking about this announcement yesterday or this morning with Simi Sarah. Have a listen, and I'll get your thoughts. And we were very disappointed with the decision that was made by the B.C. government yesterday. Uh, It really does not and will not adequately address the region's growing population and growing congestion. And now we are back to square one and, uh, and still, you know, Surrey and the South Fraser Economic uh, region is, is compromised. Okay, as the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade there, Minister, what do you say to her? Well, look, uh, the, the communities that were in particular relieved is, first of all, Metro Vancouver took a decision. They endorsed this in, in 2019. They participated in the technical review. So uh, our uh, regional government and our local government partners, very importantly, the city of Richmond, uh, Delta was at the announcement yesterday. The Sawasan uh, Chief uh, Baird was with us and uh, and Chief Sparrow from the Musqueam Nation. This is, this is what partnership looks like. And uh, I would say to Anita, who I have... Uh, a lot of fondness for you have to look at the sum total of our government's investments they're unprecedented she was there for the surrey langley skytrain announcement she was there for uh, the patala replacement project which we uh, prioritized uh, she's been there for the trans canada highway widening out to watcom road that'll be completed by 2026 uh, and the highway 91 uh, 17 inter- interchange project which is 50 percent complete right now so she knows that this government is uh, making investments that relieve congestion throughout the region and shift people towards public transit options. Minister, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. 
Thanks so much, Mike. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about the big announcement yesterday, an eight-lane tunnel to replace the chronically congested four-lane Massey Tunnel should they have built a bridge instead. Let's check in with Liberal MLA Michael Lee, the BC Liberal transportation critic. Pleased to welcome him back to the show. Michael, thank you for coming on. Well, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Okay, your thoughts on the announcement on an eight-lane tunnel to replace the Massey Tunnel? Well, Mike, clearly uh, John Horgan, the NDP, finally uh, have plan in place for the George Massey Tunnel, but people are going to be stuck in traffic for more than a decade to come. This NDP crossing will cost uh, $1.55 billion more, and it's 20% smaller than the 10-lane bridge replacement that they canceled four years ago. That replacement would have been built next year. This NDP uh, eight-lane tunnel cannot accommodate the future rapid rail transit and they'll have fewer highway upgrades, and it's still a decade away from assuming um, even if you can pass all through the environmental assessment process. So commuters should have been driving over a new crossing next year if it wasn't for the NDP's delays in mismanagement. Uh, Horgan clearly has uh, continued to delay and dither over the last four years while people are trying to get to work, they're trying to get to their appointments, and obviously all that great important transportation throwaway there in terms of getting product to market. It's a very important uh, uh, pathway there and that we need to have fixed and addressed. And now people are just going to continue to wait in what is the toughest and busiest bottleneck in the province. Okay, I just spoke to the Transportation Minister, Rob Fleming, a short time ago, and he pointed out that this project, the eight-lane tunnel, is what the region wanted. They consulted with all the regional lower mainland mayors, and the mayor's council came back and said, we don't want the Liberals' bridge, we want a tunnel instead. And I think if you did a poll of those mayors, they would say that they, they're happy with this project. What do you say to those mayors that who are directly affected in their communities by this project, saying they they want they like the tunnel? What do you say to them? Well, Mike, it's been four years since the NDP canceled this project, and commuters continue to wait. Uh, truckers continue to idle every day, and this is a project that needs to be built, and it's been another ten years away from when this will be put in place. So we know that with population growth coming to the Metro Vancouver area, 1.2 million people estimated uh, over the next year, over the next 30 yeah. years, and as well as 40% of that growth coming uh, through communities south of the Fraser, that this replacement is really needed fast, and it's needed uh, sooner than 10 years from now. Okay, Even with okay. the environmental assessment process, that's going to take some time. Okay, but I asked you about the mayors supporting the tunnel, so... What is your answer on that? You, the province should have overruled them, right? They should have gone with the bridge against the wishes of the local municipalities, correct? We need to get things done here uh, to get people moving and product moving through that passageway. It's a bridge uh, that needed to be built to replace a tunnel that's been there since 1959. It's aging infrastructure. Clearly, the province uh, needed to take a greater role to get that done. Okay, I'm speaking to Liberal Transportation Critic Michael Lee. Michael, let me play a clip here from you for you from the Transportation Minister. I spoke to him a short time ago. Here is Rob Fleming making the case for this eight-lane tunnel, saying it will solve our problems. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. The worst part of the congestion, we did a very extensive study on this, is when you're down to one lane going the other way. That's a huge source of congestion and frustration that will be resolved because you'll always have 
three lanes going in each direction. You'll have the Steveston interchange improvements that are being made. And, and look, we make no bones about it. We want to shift lots of people to public transit. If you every 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 full bus that's going to be on this new rapid bus infrastructure is fifty cars, which stretch for a kilometer or more. Okay, so he's saying that this is an eight-lane tunnel, two lanes dedicated for rapid bus service. So the other six lanes, three going in each direction, will be for commuter and truck traffic. Will that solve the congestion? Your thoughts? It, it won't, Mike. In peak hours, it was already confirmed that it's still going to be three lanes each way. So the placement won't address the congestion, the traffic delays. Peak hour trips will take the same amount of time as they do now. So because of, and that's because of the counterflow, right? Like right now in the Massey Tunnel, they've got the counterflow system. So in rush hour, they dedicate three lanes going in one direction of rush hour, right? In the morning when you're going downtown, you're going to get three lanes, and that's going to be right. the same under this replacement. Yeah. So there's no change on that. Yeah. So it's only in the off-peak times, is what the minister is referring to, that you might get a re- reduction in, in traffic time. But the, the fact of the matter is the concern around the congestion is and with, again, the, the amount of population growth that's going to be coming, uh, this is not a static thing that they should be looking at right now. This is, this is going to be continued population growth, including south of the Fraser, uh, people in Surrey and, and elsewhere that need to get through that tunnel. And that's a concern. And that's going to be during those high traffic times. And traffic times and congestion seems like it's all day long through that tunnel. Okay, the previous Liberal government had promised a 12-lane bridge instead. I asked the minister about that. It would have been cheaper. At least the, the cost estimates were cheaper than this tunnel they've announced. Here's the minister responding uh, why they didn't go with the bridge, and then I'll get your thoughts. This is a better project, and this is the project that the region wanted. Uh, this is a good technology that is safe and reliable. It will have uh, rapid bus technology integrated for the first time uh, as well, active transportation links, cycling, and pedestrian access uh, uh, through the tunnel will be will connect on both sides of the Fraser. Okay, Michael Lee, your thoughts? This is a crossing that's going to cost $1.55 billion more of taxpayer dollars. It's yeah. 20% smaller than the 10-lane bridge that the uh, BC Liberals had proposed before, and it was already under construction. It would have been built by next year. So this is something that clearly is not a better deal for British Columbians. It's a worse deal, and it's not actually going to be happening for another 10 years. What about the uh, the environmental challenges that are presented here, uh, sinking a an eight-lane tunnel under the river? They are going to use this submersible tunnel technology where they take these prefabricated sections of tunnel, sink them to the bottom of the river, and uh, install it that way, put it together underwater. What are your thoughts on the environmental implications of that? That environmental assessment work was done under the previous proposal uh, by the BC Liberals on the plan that was put in place. That work was done, 13,000 pages of work and consultations. The assessment and the certificate was received. The project was going to proceed uh, we're $100 million into that project already when the NDP canceled it four years ago. Environmental assessment work is a very important work. It's going to be a very necessary step. Under this government's plan, it's going to take three and a half years to do. Uh, clearly, uh, there are considerations around the Fraser River in terms of the fisheries there, uh, the salmon, the sturgeon, uh, the environmental sensitive areas in the river when you're submersing a tube onto the riverbed and the construction over five years on that riverbed. 
so there's concerns that have been expressed by others, including Indigenous peoples, the Sawasan First Nation. I know that uh, Chief Ken Baird was at the announcement yesterday and appreciate uh, his involvement and Chief Wayne Sparrow as well for the Musqueam. Uh, but these considerations need to be addressed. They're serious concerns, and that's going to be something that this government's going to have to work through with this it, proposal. It's got, like, delay written all over it with the complexity and the environmental challenges of a project like this. So I, I think I'm not even sure if they can meet the timelines that were laid out laid out yesterday. But one of the things that occurred to me was we could very likely have another provincial election in this province three years from now, uh, before construction has started on this project. Would a liberal government, let's say you guys form government as you hope to after the next election, would you guys stop this project and go back to the bridge? Mike, uh, a BC liberal government uh, in the future is something that we all want to see in this province. That is something that... Uh, <laughs> not ev- not everybody wants to towards, see. Mike, and, and there's a parallel process that where I'm involved with as well to ensure that that's the case. But uh, for now, uh, we want to ensure that uh, British Columbians are listened to in terms of their concerns and over this project and what's going to be happening. Uh, Obviously, uh, the voices of First Nations and others, uh, Indigenous peoples and their considerations about the environment around the Fraser River we just talked about. This is going to be a complex process that uh, this government is going to have to work through, not to mention uh, getting the financial support as well from the federal government as they go through their own election. So you don't you don't rule out can- canceling it then, right? I think we're going to have to look at all the options to make sure that British Columbians and and those commuters through, uh, including South of Fraser, can get to work, can get their children uh, to their appointments and, and medical appointments, and getting the product to market through what is a very important national. Uh, thoroughfare for for uh, for transportation. Okay. okay, Michael Lee, thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. Well, thanks, Greg. Thank hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. For having me on, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the federal election now. My guest is Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Federal Conservative Party, and I appreciate him taking the time this morning. Aaron O'Toole, thanks for coming on. Good to be back with you, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it as always. Let's talk about your housing announcement, which is of key uh, interest here in British Columbia with the uh, distorted housing market we got here. Let's talk about the foreign buyers ban that you've outlined. How would that work? Well, it's going to, we're going to put a freeze, a ban on it for two years and then reassess um, because we all know, especially in the lower mainland of BC, how the input of foreign money, uh, often with no intention to ever reside in the homes they're buying, uh, is just one other factor driving up cost and, and affordability housing crisis is, is huge. So uh, little 1% uh, add-ons to the price that Mr. Trudeau put on is doing nothing. We have to ban it, reassess it in the future, but right now stabilize a crisis before it's out of control. And our housing policy also has a range of other issues 
to increase supply, make sure the government, federal government's playing its role. And this is an area where I want to collaborate with the provinces and municipalities because it's going to take all levels of government to pay, play their, their role in tackling the housing crisis. Okay, how would that work with legitimate immigrants to Canada, landed immigrants, people who are coming here to work, live and work, and if you bring in a foreign buyer's ban? Well, there has to be either residence or an intention to reside. And so we're going to put sort of time limits on that, and, and there would have to be an attestation or some sort of way to verify. But we all know, and I've, I've had, during one of my visits to Vancouver, one of uh, my, my volunteers drove me down a street where several homes were empty and had been empty, and this is a way to just lock in an investment for people, but it's pricing our people out and it's having a ripple effect. So it's way out to the Fraser Valley. Like it's not just some of the leafy streets in Vancouver anymore. It's, it's everywhere. It's also in Toronto, Mike. So we have to freeze it. We're willing to reassess it. But my yeah. goodness, we have to have some real action on this. Okay, there's already a punitive foreign buyers tax in place in British Columbia, and people will say that that's been pretty effective in, in driving out some of the offshore speculators that may have been distorting the market in the in the past, and that uh, the foreign buyer argument is kind of maybe exaggerated or not as big as as some people think. But you still clearly think it's a problem, right? It is. Yeah, I I do think that took some of the the window to the sales of it a few years ago. But as you know, yeah. the BC Inquirer on money laundering also shows us that the proceeds of crime are fueling this. And this is just one of our pillars, Mike. Obviously, people are interested in it because we're willing to take serious action, not 1% like biting this at the margins. We're willing to take serious action, but we're also going to help with the supply issue. I want to release 15% of government-controlled sort of crown-owned lands and properties to try and fuel the supply. Our, our goal is to have a million new units in three years, which means we have to go from about 270,000 uh, home starts and units per year up to about 330, 340. And the federal government has to play a role. And the, the affordability piece for first-time buyers, which comes up for me all the time in the Lower Mainland, we're also going to try and extend mortgage terms so people can lock in an interest rate longer to provide some certainty. Let's work on, on the mortgage stress test and other things. We, we have to have an all-hands-on-deck approach because there's a crisis in housing and we need leadership, not more tweets from Justin Trudeau. Okay, speaking of federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, let me ask you about public transit funding at the federal level and how that would be impacted on your housing file. So you're saying that uh, if the federal government is going to come to British Columbia with lots of money, let's say for a SkyTrain extension like we saw recently here, that there would be, what, a requirement that you'd have to densify the housing around that rapid transit corridor, correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. We want to see... And this is something where we can work with the other levels of government to say, look, we're the federal government. We're going to come in. I announced uh, our, our willingness to expand the SkyTrain before Mr. Trudeau did, but we want to tie density to it. Now, a lot of the municipalities, a lot of the provinces are looking at these approaches, Mike. But this is yeah. one other example where we're going to say, hey, let's get the money out the door faster. Mr. Trudeau only barely gets about 50 percent of what he announces, 50 to 60 percent actually out the door. He's great at announcing things, bad at delivering. And if we can have a multiplier effect, accelerate supply through transit investment, that is smart. It reduces emissions, good for the environment, good for, good to fight the rising cost of living and the housing crisis. Okay, you also announced that Canadians would be allowed to defer capital gains taxes if they sell a rental property. How would, how would that work? 
and I'm I'm sure you will get people say this is a, a giveaway to the wealthy. But how do you how does that work there? A capital gains deferral. Yeah, you know, you'll see the liberals, you know, make up things about it. This is called a rollover. But the the provision here, Mike, is it will only apply if they're going to build or supply more rental housing, dedicated rental housing. So it's basically deferring, rolling over the capital gain if they're actually going to help us create more supply. So this is smart policy. This came to us in some of our outreach to housing advocates, to uh, folks in the industry, of pushing in a number of, of private sector investors who might roll over a small unit and get involved in the construction of a, a much larger unit, more dedicated rental housing. So this isn't for anything other than dedicated rental housing. It, it will accelerate supply of that because I'll tell you, the housing crisis is pricing out working families and we want to fight for them. Okay, speaking to Aaron O'Toole, the Conservative leader, let me ask you about another issue that continues to dog you, I guess, every election, and that is uh, the Conservative policy on abortion. So the Liberals are saying that you're just pretending to be pro-choice, that maybe there's some sort of secret agenda here in abortion, but can you give me your thoughts here on how it, would abortion laws change at all in Canada under a Conservative government? No, and I'm, I'm pro-choice, <clears throat> and the, the Liberals know this. I have a strong voting record in, in respect to, to rights for women, for the LGBTQ community. In fact, I was there at sometimes when Mr. Trudeau wasn't for votes to stand up for that community. So we're a few days in. Uh, they've tried to divide people uh, with a fourth wave pandemic. They're ignoring the, the, the burning in British Columbia, the forest fires, the situation in Afghanistan. This is Mr. Trudeau's vanity election. And within a couple of days, they're, they're lying to people about me. They're trying to sow division. I think Canadians want better than that. That's why we have Canada's recovery plan, which I launched on day two, Mike, as you know, our comprehensive plan to get Canada back on its feet and to tackle real issues like affordability, like the housing crisis. <laughs> Mr. Trudeau yesterday said he, he's not concerned with inflation and monetary policy. It doesn't, doesn't concern him. Well, the rising cost of living for families concerns me. We're going to raise wages and put downward pressure on prices, Good. and we're going to tackle housing. Okay, you also said this morning, though, that a conservative government would pr protect conscientious objection rights of doctors and nurses who are who are uh, pro-life or anti-abortion, right? So, how would do we not do we ha we have that in the country now, though? Do we not? Uh, in in, yeah. in some ways, like look, I'm I'm pro-choice. Uh absolute guarantee that women will have access to health care, including abortion services from coast to coast. That will be for certain. The one thing we're trying to do, particularly as medical assistance in dying is now potentially being expanded to mental health situations, there's still a lot of discussion about how, how this expanding right needs to, be, uh, needs to be provided. So what we need to do is also respect concerns with physicians, frontline uh, healthcare workers, how can we balance respecting their, their conscience rights? A lot are very much against uh, having uh, assisted dying for someone with a, a treatable mental health condition. So as we're looking at these issues, let's try and respect the access for people to their, their services, but also respect our, our frontline healthcare workers who, as, as you know, Mike, have been working like at a Herculean pace for the last 15 months. And we want to try and respect them. 
Okay, you also talked, you also touched briefly there on the, what you've described as a wedge issue here being waged by the federal liberals on the COVID-19 pandemic and mandatory vaccination. So you've got the federal liberals saying that they would bring in mandatory vaccination for federal employees, Crown Corporation employees, uh, potentially expanding it to federally mandated sectors of the economy too. You're saying that you would not bring in mandatory vaccination, but you would, if someone does not want to get vaccinated, they would have to get rapid testing. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. My first thing is I always say vaccines are key and they're safe and effective. I've been promoting their use uh, and actually trying to get a faster supply, as you might recall, Mike, for, for a year. Uh, But there would, we will respect people's decisions and we should educate, not coerce. And there's an easy way to use daily rapid testing for small numbers that may not be vaccinated to reduce the risk of spread. The fact is, in in the days after Mr. Trudeau tried to divide people on this, it came out that his own department, his own civil service was recommending kind of a similar approach to what I am. So, of course, they pulled that off the Internet. They're already covering up and deceiving people on day two and three of the election. People are tired of Justin Trudeau's constant unethical conduct, constant division. We can deserve better. And our recovery plan, as people get to know me, I'm a straight shooter. I will deliver and I'll bring people together. On mandatory vaccinations, though, you do seem to be going kind of counter to some of the trends and uh, momentum we see across the country. Like, for example, the, the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Toronto Raptors announcing mandatory vaccination for staff and for fans coming into the building. Are do you support that? I, I want to respect whatever provinces and whatever you know private sector workplaces want to do yeah. to keep their workplace safe. And vaccines are the most critical tool in that. But a lot of them are already rapid testing on a daily basis and still using masks and a whole range of things. And some provinces may set limitations on on someone um, you know attending a game or something like this. But here's where we got to respect the rights and responsibilities all Canadians have, Mike. Uh, people have the right to make their own health choice, and I want them to look at, at vaccines uh, and know that they're safe and effective for use. But with their rights come certain responsibilities, and that's daily testing. And it might mean, in cases of some provinces or, or settings, uh, some limitations, foreign travel, right. for example. So let's let's not divide Canadians. In the fourth wave, let's work together. we we tried to do that throughout this pandemic. The fact that Mr. Trudeau threw an election into the mix is is very, very uh, divisive and disappointing. But let's not get divided. Let's work to fight COVID together. Thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Always good to be with you, Mike. Take care. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the stinky star attraction at the Bloedel Conservatory now. Their rare and rancid corpse flower blooming once again the big announcement made by the vancouver park board yesterday over the next 24 to 48 hours they say this the plant will emit its powerful signature odor described as smelling like rotting fish sweaty socks and hot garbage who would not want to get a whiff of that i think it's great let's check in with anissa rusin now acting blowdell conservatory lead anissa thank anissa thank you for coming on Thanks for having me. Okay, I love this story. I think the plant is is great. Let's first of all tell me a little bit about this plant. They they say this is a rare plant. Where is it native to? So the Titan Arum or the Amorphophallus titanum is native to Indonesia on the island of Sumatra. Right, right, and it's a big plant, right? It's enormous. 
Yeah. Uh, in the wild, it can grow up to be 12 feet in flower and 15 feet in leaf. Wow. Okay. And the one that you have at the Bloedel Conservatory, I, I understand, is about two meters tall? That's right. Okay. And that's big enough. That's it big, certainly is. That's it's, big enough for the odor. Okay. When did it start to uh, flower? So it started to open up. The modified leaf began to sort of loosen from the spadex at about 5 p.m. yesterday. Okay. Was that expected or was that a surprise? No, it was expected. Um, okay. I was measuring its temperature, which uh, begins to heat up when it's close to bloom time, and it was getting warmer and warmer. And so it was, it was certainly expected. We just didn't know if it was going to be yesterday or today. So, Right. And the name of the flower is... Uncle Fester? Uncle Fester, okay. <laughs> I, okay, I, I love the name. Who came up with that name? That's a great name for this plant. There is actually a poll, a citizen poll, and so okay. there are lots of options, and that's what folks decided was the best name, which well, is I, fitting, I think. I think it's perfect. I think it's a perfect name for the uh, the corpse flower. Have you have you smelled this thing yourself? I have. It's uh, it's nauseating. <laughs> okay. It, it really is. <laughs> it's really that bad. This is no hype. No, um, no. It's okay. it's disgusting. <laughs> okay. How would how would you describe it? What does it compare to? You know, it smells like a dead rodent, like stuck in your wall for a few weeks. That yeah. that's my best description. Okay, nature is an amazing thing. Like, why would a flower evolve in this manner to smell bad like that? Like, most flowers smell smell sweet, right? They want to attract bumblebees and stuff, and they smell beautiful, attracting butterflies. Like, why would this plant smell so so bad like that? What is the purpose of that? It's a great question. So, uh, this plant has evolved to attract a very specific pollinator, which is the carrion beetle or the flesh fly. And it heats up to about body temperature and also is the color of flesh, hence the name corpse flower. Um, and it sends out a set of chemicals that smell absolutely awful in order to attract those pollinators so it can produce fruit and then seed in order to reproduce. Right. So it's deliberately trying to smell like a dead carrion to attract those, those pollinators. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible. so incredible. It's such yeah. a beautiful thing. It is. I mean, nature is, is truly amazing, and it, it's really cool that we have an opportunity like this to, to experience it and see it. So I'm sure this is very popular, right? Like when, when, you, when the word went out that Uncle Fester was blooming again, what kind of reaction did you get from your visitors? Oh, we sold out very quickly today, and I yeah. think tomorrow's <laughs> nearly sold out. So, yeah, there's lots of hype. People are very excited. And I think, you know, just blessed to be in its, in its glory. <laughs> yeah. Um, how long will it bloom for? So it will bloom for 24 to 48 hours. So it's quite yeah. a short and brief time. And I think that's just because it takes so much energy to do so. It can't really maintain that. I can't maintain that pungency for too long. So 24 no. to 48 hours. So it's already been blooming for about 24 hours, though, now, right? Or has uh, it? Uh, about 5 p.m., it'll be 24 hours. Okay, so we're a little ways into the, into the cycle. Mm -hmm. So we gotta, people have a short window of opportunity to experience this if they so desire, right? So how can people get in there to take a whiff of this plant? Get your tickets while, while they're hot. And if yeah. you can't make it, you can visit BlodellConservatory.ca and watch our live stream. Right. And how, what are your hours over there? So today it's 9 to 9, and tomorrow it's also 9 to 9, and then we're back to 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. starting Saturday. 
Okay, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., and do you ha- you have to buy a ticket beforehand, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, online. Yeah, and, and is it, um, are you limiting the number of people in there because of COVID? Certainly, it's a 50-person capacity. Oh, yeah, see, that's the thing. Like, I remember when this thing bloomed a few years ago, you had the big crowds, but... Five-hour lines, it's much different wow. this time. <laughs> wow, five-hour lines. So now you've got to be lucky to get the ticket. Are, are there many tickets left? Not for today, but for tomorrow. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay, so you're sold out today, but you've got tickets for tomorrow. That's right. And are they on sale right now, the tickets for tomorrow? Yep. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much does it cost to get in? Uh, it's just over $7 for an adult. Well, that's a bargain. Yeah. In my, in my opinion. Okay, where can people buy the tickets, Anessa? Where should they go? Lodellconservatory.ca. Right. And where are, you, where are you guys located again? We're in Queen Elizabeth Park. Anessa, congratulations with uh, Uncle Fester and Bloom again. I think it's awesome. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks, Mike. Take care. 